Okay, there we go. Uh, okay, we are in Psalm 18. We've uh, spent a couple weeks in it. Uh, our first lesson was largely introductory, and then we looked at verse 1. And last week, we picked it up again in verse 1, and we looked at the first six verses or so. Uh, and uh, today, I'd like to try to pick up my pace. It's pretty clear we're not going to do an exhaustive study of Psalm 18 before I finish, because we just have today and then one more lesson available together uh, in a couple weeks. <clears throat> but uh, uh, let's read beginning in verse 1 and uh, let's read down through verse 24 and, uh, and then we'll pick it up from there. He says, I love you, O Lord, my uh, strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress, my deliverer. My God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. The cords of death encompassed me, and the torrents of ungodliness, or that could be translated destruction, terrified me. The cords of shoal surrounded me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress... I called upon the Lord and cried to my God for help. He heard my voice out of his temple and my cry for help before him came into his ears. Then the earth shook and quaked and the foundations of the mountains were trembling and were shaken because he was angry. Smoke went up out of his nostrils and fire from his mouth devoured. Coals were kindled by it. He bowed the heavens also and came down. We, uh, with thick darkness under his feet, he rode upon the cherub and flew and sped upon the wings of the wind. He made darkness his hiding place, his canopy around him, darkness of waters, thick clouds of the skies. From the brightness before him, he passed uh, before him passed his thick clouds, hailstones and coals of fire. The Lord also thundered in the heavens, and the Most High uttered His voice, hailstones and coals of fire. He sent out His arrows and scattered them, the lightning flashes in abundance, and routed them. Then the channels of water appeared, and the foundations of the world were laid bare. It's Your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of Your nostrils. He sent from on high. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. He delivered me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my stay. He brought me forth also into a broad place. He rescued me because He delighted in me. The Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, He has recompensed me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and not departed wickedly from my God. For all His ordinances were before me and I did not put away His statutes from me. And I was also blameless with Him and kept myself from my iniquity. Therefore, the Lord has recompensed me according to my righteousness according to the cleanness of my hands in his eyes. And he's just getting started <laughs> at that point. But um, as I said, the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at the first six verses. What are 
some of the things that stick out in your mind that we've talked about so far. Yeah, yeah, it's very interesting that in verse one there, uh, uh, David, when he uses that word there, I love you, O Lord, he uses a word that in the Old Testament is never in no, in no other place in the Old Testament is this used in reference to man's love for God. This is the only place where it's used like that. It's always in every other case is used of God's love to man. And so it seems like David is trying to really express here uh, the depth of the feeling of his love and his affection for the Lord that he's feeling particularly because he has just experienced such a great deliverance and salvation from God. What else? One of the things we talked about is that whenever you read through this, it almost appears like David had a problem and God just swooped in and took him out of it and the next day he went on to something else. Yeah. We know that uh, it really wasn't like that when you look at the background material. Yeah. And it took much longer. And that's a very important thing for us to remember. Uh, because uh, what David is trying to communicate here, and we'll look more at these verses today about God's response. But what David is trying to communicate here is not that God's response to us when we are in crisis is always from our perception instantaneous and there's immediate deliverance. And our experience obviously proves that that's not the case, right? So there's something else that David is trying to communicate when he, when he talks the way he does. And we'll explore that a little bit today. What else? Very descriptive of something, but it's not, it's poetic. Yes. And so there's a lot of emotions uh, brought out in the, in the imagery. Yes. But I wonder how much of it is what God, what David thinks it's like spiritually, in a spiritual setting, almost like Revelation, where you see something happening. And I didn't know what your thoughts on that. Can you elaborate a little bit more? Well, for example, in Revelation, it talks about all the thunder and lightning. Uh huh, yeah. But then there's things happening on the earth that may be different from that, but it's, it's kind of like you see one thing in heaven, but you see something else happening on earth. I, I, think, I think that is true. Yeah, I do think that. that uh, and in fact, we'll talk a little bit about that today, about how, uh, how from, a, from a spiritual or heavenly perspective, God is moving in these very dynamic ways, but. but from our perspective on earth, it looks very different. And, uh, and we'll, yeah, we're going to talk a little bit about that. I, de- I definitely feel that that's the case. What, what David is expressing here is, is his, his, the impression the Holy Spirit has given him of God's feeling and God's action and what God is doing. But from our perspective, it doesn't look that way. And, and that becomes, I think, very clear in this passage as we look at it. So that's a great point. Okay. Well, for the sake of time, let's move on then. This is, of course, 
Uh, as we said, it is a psalm which David apparently wrote uh, shortly after his uh, deliverance from Saul, but it is a psalm that apparently also uh, David uh, uh, expressed again or sang again or had sung again at other times of great deliverance in his life when he had experienced great deliverances from God. Uh, <clears throat> And uh, and last week we we uh, we looked at uh, his description of God as his refuge. We talked about how he's using images, as Gary was pointing out. This is poetry, and so he's he's using imagery, he's using metaphors, but he's using a lot of things from his life experience, from his time out there in the fields shepherding the sheep and that sort of thing. So he talks about the caves, he talks about the rocks. Uh, uh, and also there's imagery from his from his flight from Saul as he would hide out in the cave of Adullam. And he's thinking about the cave of Adullam as he's referring to God as his fortress and as a defense. OK, so these are things that these are images that Paul, uh, excuse me, David is bringing up and teaching Romans too long. Uh, these are images that uh, David uh, is bringing up. Uh, from his own experience as a shepherd and as a warrior and as a and as and as a as a fugitive from uh, from the pursuit of King Saul, so these are the things that he's talking about. And he talks about how God is his refuge and his rock and his fortress and and that sort of thing. And then in verses four and five, he described for us this crisis, what this crisis was like for him. And he talks about the cords of death encompassing him. So you you get this image that he of someone who's actually tied up. The the cords or the ropes uh, of death have, have encompassed him. They surrounded him. So he's tied up. He's constrained by the threat of death. He talks about the torrents uh, of uh, in uh, uh, verse four he talks about the torrents of ungodliness or uh, as I said, that could be translated destruction, but it's this this image we get of being caught in a flash flood, okay, in a, in a great storm and a flash flood. And some of us may have had experiences with something similar, a very terrifying thing. Uh, and uh, that imagery will come out again later in the psalm. Uh, he talks about the cords of shoal again, a reference to, of course, death surrounding him and the snares of death. So we get this picture of a man who's in this, he's in this terrible, life-threatening situation and he sees no way out of it. He's completely caught up in this situation. He's overwhelmed by it. He's tied up by it. Uh, he's terrified by it. Uh, and I, I find that fascinating uh, to me. I think it's a very important point to realize that here is this man of God, a man after God's own heart, a great man of faith, and yet he talks about being terrified. And I think that's the reality of our experience, isn't it? That oftentimes situations, we know, we know God, we love God, we know God loves us, and yet we find ourselves in situations that are terrifying. That's reality, folks. And that's where David finds himself. And so what does he do in that situation? Well, in the next verse, then he tells us, he says, in my distress, I called upon the Lord and I cried to my God for help. And so and we talked about this last week as as Bob was mentioning in his prayer uh, earlier, we talked about the fact that every situation we face, every problem we face in life, whatever its magnitude, 
is designed to drive us to Christ. Okay? And, and we, we read about David's crisis here and we, we went through the first week and we looked at we went through 1 Samuel very quickly and we looked at about 12 different situations where, where David was fleeing for his life from Saul. And, uh, and uh, this went on for years, okay? And I look at that and I go, well, I've never been in a situation like that. I've never been in, uh, in a life-threatening situation like that. And sometimes, as I mentioned last week, sometimes we look, at, the, we look at, the, at other people's problems, we look at other people's crises, and we think, well, you know, I've never been in that situation. So, you know, my, you know why am I so worried about my situation? Because other people have, have things far worse than that. We read about things that are going on in other places in the world or we think about the family of the woman who was so brutally murdered this week uh, in Moore. We think about those kind of situations and we go, you know, my, my problems look so little, you know, why do I bother God with my problems? But that is precisely what our problems are designed to do is to drive us to Christ. Whatever the size of the problem, okay, and so David cried out to God, and it says God heard him. So here is David; he's down there, he's down here on earth. He's he's down; he's very, he's at the very threshold of Shaul. He's in he's in peril for his life. He's in the lowest pit you can be in, and he cries to God. And the description we get is so beautiful. He says, "He heard my voice out of his temple." And my cry for help came into his ears. And so we get this beautiful picture that David is way down there in the pit and he cries out to God for help. And up there, up there in heaven, up there in the temple of God, up there in the throne room of God, up there on the throne of God, that voice, that cry, that voice of David penetrates all the way to the throne of God and penetrates his ears. And God hears. And David says he hears my voice. Now, I, I, I don't know for sure if what David had in mind there is this, but, but what struck my mind as I thought about that is that, is that when, when God heard that cry for help, it wasn't just some random cry for help. He recognized the voice of David. I know that man. I know that voice. And God responds because he recognizes that voice. He knows that man. And we're going to see what God thinks about this man as we go forward. So then we get this remarkable passage that goes on for several verses, beginning in verse 7. He says, Then the earth shook and quaked, and the foundations of the mountains were trembling and were shaken because he was angry. And so we see that God hears about David's crisis, that he has this adversary. He has these people who are pursuing him. In this case, it's King Saul. And of course, we know it's not like God didn't know about this stuff. You know, but again, Paul, or David here is using this imagery, uh, this poetic imagery to help us feel what goes on in heaven when we cry to God. And when God sees our affliction and He sees our suffering and He sees the injustice sometimes that's done to us. And, and, and when He hears about that and we cry to Him, there is this remarkable 
profound response. Now, as, as we were mentioned a few minutes ago, if we read this passage, he says, smoke went up from his nostrils, fire from his mouth, etc. He bowed the heavens and came down, verse 9. Uh, verse 10, he rode upon a cherub and flew. And you get, this, you get this picture of God just flying to help David. Okay. But as was mentioned earlier, from our perspective, it doesn't look like that, does it? It didn't look that way to David from David's perspective. This particular crisis that, that precipitated David writing this psalm went on for years. And we don't know exactly how long, but it probably easily went on for six or eight years. And some people say 15 to 20 years that he fled from Saul before he finally saw this deliverance that he writes about. But what David wants us to understand here is is that when we cry to God, when we pray to Him, He's not just kind of just sitting back there on His throne going, well, you know, I've got a time schedule here and when I get around to it, I'll solve your problem. Or He's not sitting there and... And thinking, well, you know, uh, I've, 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 you know, I, I understand. I, I, I hear you've got a problem here, but there's things I got to fix in you before I. So you're just going to have to wait till I fix these things in you. That's not God's attitude. So, so I don't think what David is trying to communicate to us here is the idea that God instantly fixes our problems when we're in a crisis, and we know that's not true. But what David is trying to communicate to us is the heart of God when he hears us cry. If we could just be convinced of that. If we could just be convinced that, that these verses where God is angry and the foundations of the earth shake and he, and he rides upon a cherub and he flies upon the wind. This is the heart of God. With God, a thousand years is a day and one day is a thousand years. So to us, it may look like it's taking a long time. But it's not because God is indifferent, that He does not care, or that He's too busy. But what we see here is a God who is angered when His people are unjustly treated. And God is stirred when His people suffer. I think that picture in John 11 of Jesus at the tomb of Lazarus is so beautiful and is so often misunderstood. The shortest verse in the Bible, John 11.35, right? What's it say? Jesus wept. I don't know how many times I've heard people try and explain Jesus wept because the people didn't believe, etc., etc., etc. It's nonsense, folks. Jesus wept because He was grieved and shared their sorrow. That's why He wept. And it tells us right there in the text in John 11, the people looked and they said, Behold how He loved Him. And, and so we need to understand, you know, this problem of suffering and pain, it's the biggest problem we deal with in, in our lives, isn't it? 
It's the, it really is, in, uh, in, in many ways, the greatest obstacle people have to coming to faith and coming to Christ is the problem of suffering. How can a loving God allow suffering to go on like it does? Okay. So this problem of suffering and pain is one of the biggest problems we face in life, if not the biggest problem. It's probably, as I say, the largest challenge to our faith, both to believers and unbelievers. And so I think it's imperative for us to understand when we suffer that God enters into our suffering with us. And we see how passionately God cares here about David's predicament. We see that he's he's angry. The foundations of the earth shake. Uh, He moves. God hears the cry and he moves to answer David's prayer. he, uh, he says he bows the heavens and he comes down and with thick darkness. Under, and, and, and in about four verses there, four different times, he mentions this idea of the thick clouds and the darkness that surround God as he comes to, uh, uh, comes to deliver David. And, and, uh, and that imagery of the darkness, of course, Again, we're familiar with this, living in Oklahoma where we do, uh, of, of storms and, and how dark it can get even in the middle of the day when these storms come in. And, uh, and of course, darkness is, a, uh, is used oftentimes in Scripture to, to, to communicate to us the imagery of, uh, of, uh, of confusion, of fear, of terror, of uncertainty, of bewilderment, okay? This is what is uh, present as, as God comes to deliver David. And as I'm thinking about this, uh, I, I think there's, there's two ways to understand this. One is that for David's adversaries, okay, which in this case, initially at least, included Saul and those that were with Saul, God is coming to deliver David, but they don't see God. All they get is the darkness and the lightning and the thunder and the you know and all the scary stuff. Okay. And uh, and when we read the story about how God delivered David from Saul, we understand that's precisely how it happened. Is the Philistines come in, right? And there's this great battle between the Philistines and the children of Israel and King Saul. And the children of Israel are defeated. They're caused to flee. And, and Saul's son Jonathan is killed. And, and, and Saul ultimately ends up committing suicide. Okay? Now, this didn't look like the hand of God, did it? It's just, you know, this is just another battle with people, you know. But it's very dark. It's a very terrifying situation. We read these stories about wars in the Bible and we just kind of read over them and go, oh, you know, another battle or another war, you know. Uh, but once you've been in war, I would assume you don't read those passages quite the same way. So this is a very, this is a very dark, terrifying time for the enemies of Saul. Excuse me, enemies of David. <clears throat> but what it is is it's God bringing deliverance to David. But the flip side of that is that oftentimes when God is 
bringing deliverance in our lives, it's also dark to us. We don't see. We don't understand. We don't see how He's working. And it is oftentimes a frightening and grievous process. And so it was with David. The thing that strikes me about David is in 2 Samuel chapter 1, we find what is David's response when he hears of, the de- of Saul's defeat and the defeat of the children of Israel. What is David's response? He goes into mourning. And it says he wept for Saul. And he wept for Jonathan, who was his best friend. And it says he wept for the children of Israel. So here David is experiencing God's deliverance. But it is a time of darkness to David. It's a time of mourning. And I have to say, in my experience, and I'm sure you, you all recognize it in your lives and in your experience too, don't you? That oftentimes, when God is really working to bring about some great salvation or deliverance in your life, it's been a time of darkness. It's been a time when God was working, but you couldn't see it. And maybe you couldn't see it for, you know, until many years later. And you look back and then you went, wow, that was such a hard time. But God was doing such a marvelous thing. And so, so what David wants us to understand here is that God was not... Indifferent to his cry, God was not remote, God wasn't, wasn't just up there somewhere, but, but that God took it very seriously and God was angry about people mistreating him. And God was upset, if we can use that word about God, that God was stirred when he saw his people suffering, when he sees his child in whom he delights suffering. And so, he says... Uh, then in uh, moving down to uh, uh, verse 16, he says, And he sent from on high. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. He delivered me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me. For they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity. But the Lord was my stay. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me. Because he delighted in me. I, you know, those of you who have listened to me for a while, you know, I, I, I like to talk about the transcendence of God. I, I get captivated by that idea of God's transcendence. That means he's, he's other than. He is other than. That's, that's the word holy means. Separate. And God is holy. He is separate. He is separate from us. He's, 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 he's outside of space and outside of time because they are His creation. He created time. He created space. Okay? So, he's, 
He's outside. That's pretty cool to me. And I like thinking about all that. Okay. But there's another aspect about God which is just as true and that's God's imminence. That He's here. That He's present. That He's with us. Now, unbelievers have a hard time getting this balance that Christianity gives to us. So, on one side, we have a major religion of the world which emphasizes only his transcendence. That would be Islam. So, they only emphasize his transcendence. There's none of the imminence of God in Islam. Uh, But on the flip side, you have pantheism. Okay? They have Hinduism and, and Buddhism and the pantheistic religions, and, and they're all about the imminence of God, so much so that, you know, God's in everything. He's in this, you know, and so their whole emphasis is the imminence of God, okay? But it is only in the gospel of Christ that we discover that God is both transcendent and imminent. He is both way out there and right here. And. And this is what strikes me about, <laughs> about David when he cries to God is that we see both these things. That God's way up there, you know, and, and he cries and his cry goes way up there into his temple. And then what does God do? He says, he sent from on high. And he took me. And he drew me out of many waters. And he says, he delivered me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me. and For they were too mighty for me, he says. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my stake. So here's this great God who is transcendent and, and, and lives, dwells in unapproachable light. In a, you know, we, we can't even comprehend. And, and then, and then, and then a one little child of his who is suffering calls out to him cries out to him. And that cry enters into his ear. And this great transcendent God flies on the wings of the wind and comes down, he says, and he took me and he drew me out of many waters. And so you get that picture again, of course, of David being caught in some kind of a torrent, some kind of a terrible flash flood of some kind. And we've all seen pictures on television videos, haven't we, of people who are caught in some kind of a flash flood or something. Maybe they're sitting on top of a car hanging to the limb of a tree or whatever. And, and the helicopter comes in and they drop, and they drop the, the, the ropes down or whatever. Or somebody comes descending down and they take them and they just literally draw them right out of the torrent. Right? You've all seen that. David says, that's what God did for me. I was a goner. I was a goner and God came and He took and He just drew me out of many waters. And He rescued me, He says, from my enemies who were too strong for me. Yeah, I don't need to be rescued from the enemies that I'm bigger than. But it's those ones that are too strong for me. It's those situations in life that are overwhelming to me and I can't handle them. You've got them and I've got them. And it's interesting to me, he says, he rescued me from those who were too strong for me. He said, who confronted me in the day of my calamity. 
Isn't that just the way of an enemy? He's watching for when you're most vulnerable. And then he exploits that vulnerability. That's what David's enemies were doing. They were catching him when he was down. And, and that's, you know, we have an expression for that. In the vernacular, we say it never rains, but it pours. You know, another way of saying that is our enemies come after us when we're down. Our enemies are too strong for us and they confront us in the day of our calamity. And it is God who rescues David in that situation because David couldn't do it. All David could do was run for his life and hide in a cave. But it was only God who could rescue him from Saul who was too mighty for him. And so he does that. And, and it says, the Lord can, uh, he says, uh, the Lord was my stay. That is, he, he was his strength. He was his staff in his day of calamity and the day of adversity. And then it says, he brought me forth into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted me. I, I don't know if any of you have any claustrophobic tendencies. <clears throat> I've discovered in life I have more of that than I thought I did. Uh, I used to I used to explore in caves and do stuff like that. And, and nowadays, just thinking about some of the things I did when I was younger get, makes me claustrophobic, you know. Uh, I had a recent, uh, a few years ago, about four or five years ago, I had a procedure done on my back. A, a friend of ours is a surgeon, a doctor up in uh, northeastern Oklahoma, and, and I had something removed off my back. He says, I'll do that. He says, come up here and I'll do it. I'll do it for free. <laughs> so I went up there, and, and, and he's just going to do it outpatient. And so I laid down on the table, and he gave me a shot, you know. And, and then just to keep, I don't know why, he laid a, he laid a, just a cloth over my head, you know, just lying in, and he just laid a cloth over my head, you know. And I said, uh, you know, he, it was there about 15 seconds, and I went, uh, David, uh, can't have that cloth. No, just, you know, just a cloth hanging over my head. I mean, I'd go to bed and I'd put a pillow over my head, but, you know, the doc put a, you know, just put a piece of cloth, I guess, to keep from splatting something in my face or something, I don't know what. But I said, you know, so he had to take it off. I started getting claustrophobic, you know. Well, here is David, and it says he's encompassed by the cords of death. And he's surrounded, he says, by the cords of shore. And he says he is confronted by the snares of death. So here's David. He can't go anywhere. He's holed up in a cave. He's completely constrained. He can't move. Have you ever been there? I'm not talking about physically, but emotionally and spiritually. You ever been in a situation like that? And you just go, I can't move. I can't get out of this situation. I'm completely, it's completely got me tied down. And you start getting claustrophobic, emotionally, spiritually claustrophobic. And not too long after this, David finds himself in a palace in Jerusalem, in a broad place. 
you know, when I used to used to kind of go cave exploring on a very amateur level, I don't want to give you people impressions about me that are greater, but but when I used to do that, you know, it was always fun, and you're in these caves, and, 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 you know, and you're all scrunched up and everything. But I tell you what, it was always so nice to finally come out of the mouth of that cave and stand there on the side of the mountain. And, oh, <laughs> I'm out in the open. And that's what it was like for David when God finally delivered him. He could finally breathe. He was finally out in the open. He could finally see tomorrow. Now, why did God do this? Why did God do this for David? He says, He brought me forth also into a broad place. He rescued me, He says, because He delighted in me. And then David goes into these next five verses. He said, The Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands. He has recompensed me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord. I have not wickedly departed from my God. For all His ordinances were before me. And I did not put away His statutes from me. I was also blameless with Him. And I kept myself from my iniquity. Therefore, the Lord has recompensed me according to my righteousness and according to the cleanness of my hands and His eyes. And I read those verses... And I don't know about you, but I go. I don't know, Lord. Maybe this psalm isn't for me after all. Do you have that reaction? You read, you read what David says there. You know, this, this, these verses, these verses really pre- present me with two problems. And one is, I go. I've failed the Lord too many times. I've fallen short too many times. Can I believe? Can I claim the promise that God delights in me? The second thing is, the second problem is, David can't even say this stuff. Right? I mean, we know David. This hot-tempered, you know, Emotional. Uh, I mean, I told you, you know, he's creative. He's an artist. That tells you a lot about his temperament, okay? This guy is a pain in the neck for those of us who are an artist, okay? <laughs> you know? We have, we have the sin with Bathsheba. We have the sin uh, with Absalom. We have the, the sin about how he handled the situation of the rape of his daughter. We have the sin of him counting the children of Israel. You know, we have some biggies in David's life. And he doesn't even tell us about the little ones every day. So how does he say this? Well, all those things are true about David. And all those things are true about you. We've failed God. We've failed Him miserably. We've hurt other people. We've all done those things. But the thing about David's life is that what he says here is still true. Because this is the tenor of David's life. This is the big picture of David's life. Yes, he has those failures. He has those 
those faults. He has those crises in his life when he blows it. And certainly we know about those and the, and the impact of those was significant, of course, not only in David's life, but in the lives of his family and in the lives of the nation, life of the nation. But we do know about David, that he was a man after God's own heart. God said that. David didn't say that. And we know about David that though there were times of great failure and great shame in David's life, that David was a man who had constantly set the Lord before his face. And he says that. He kept the Lord before his face and he sought to walk in his ways. And when he sinned, what would he do? He'd just come before the Lord and he'd confess it. And he'd say, God, that's not the way I want to walk. That's not the way I want to live. And he would acknowledge the rightness of God's ways. Psalm 51 is a classic example. And David confesses that the Lord's dealings with him are right and righteous and true. And so David says here, he says, the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands. He says, for I have kept the ways of the Lord and I have not wickedly departed from my God. And when he uses that phrase, wickedly departed from my God, he's using some terminology that has a particular significance in the Old Testament. Because there are several places in the Old Testament where God is confronting the wicked and he's talking about how they have put God behind their back. Or they have put God's word behind their back. And what David is saying is, I have not done that. How do I know that's what David's saying? Because he says in the next verse, for all his ordinances were before me and I did not put away his statutes from me. And so although... David stumbles like we stumble as a child of God, as one who was after a man after God's own heart. His life was characterized by a life in which God was before him. And he was always mindful of God. And so even in his failure, he was mindful of God. And God delighted in that. That was... That was to God such a precious thing that here is this poor, feeble sinner, David, down here, but that he is so determined in all of his stumbling, in all of his failing, he is so determined he's going to keep God before his eyes. And he's not going to put God's Word behind him. There's a point there in the Old Testament, uh, I think it's in Isaiah, where Isaiah rebukes, uh, uh, rebukes some people he says, uh, speaking uh, for God, he's rebuking some people. He says, he says, God says, who are you to take your words in my mouth? You who have put your words, my words behind you. So what is the point? These are, point, these are people who are quoting the Bible. But in their life, they disregard it. It's just, you know, they don't give any consideration to the scripture. They just use it. But David's not like that. I was, as I was trying to memorize this verse uh, yesterday, and I was, I was uh, trying to get some kind of a mental picture of this verse, where he says, "Your ordinances were always before me. I, I did not put your statutes away." And I was trying to get this picture, mental picture, and the mental picture I came up with is, in our house, in all of our houses, right? We have 
we have out on the shelves and, you know, on the coffee table and stuff, we have things, that, you know, like pictures. You know, we have our wedding picture hanging on the wall or we have, you know, a picture of the grandkids there on the coffee table, you know, so everybody sees it when they come in and sit on our couch, you know, or whatever. And, you know, we have these kind of, you know, maybe a special souvenir you picked up on some special trip. The things that are precious to you and you want to think about where you got them. Okay. You got them all around your house. You got them in front of you. Right. So you see them. But there are some things that you have over the years put in boxes, right? And stuck up in the attic. Now, maybe some of those things are still precious to you, which is why they're in the attic instead of in the dumpster. But, but there are things you don't think about anymore. You finally realize these things are not so important to me that I need them out there on the shelf in the living room. I can put these things in a, in a box and stick them in the garage, right? What about God's Word? You see, to David, God's Word was not something that he had just stuck in a box and stuck on a shelf. But it was something he had out there for him to see. You read Psalm 119, that lengthy psalm, longest psalm of all the psalms, and he goes on and on and on and on and on about the Word of God and how important the Word of God was to him. Now, folks, God delivered David. Temporally, we're talking about. We're not talking about David's salvation here. We're not talking about eternal salvation. We know that comes by grace. But God providentially governs in life based upon the principle that if we are a child of His, if we love Him, if if we set Him before us, if we don't put His Word behind us, if those things we keep in front of us and we keep pressing on those, towards those things, we keep pushing towards those things, even though we often fail, we keep pushing towards those things, God delights in us. Think of your child, for those of you who've had children, think of your child when they were just a year, whatever old, and they were first learning to walk. Right, And they would be on one side of the room and you'd be on the other side and, and they'd kind of pull themselves up on the couch or whatever and they're standing there and you say, come to daddy, come to daddy. Yeah. And so they'd start and they'd get about two or three steps, boom, you know, and they'd struggle back up and they'd try another two or three steps and then they'd fall. What was your response? Come to daddy. You were delighted. You were delighted. Why? Because that little child of yours wanted to come to you. And what happens when they can't get up anymore? What do they do? They crawl, don't they? They crawl. Because they want to come to daddy or they want to come to mommy. And what does our heart do in that situation? We're, over, we're overflowing with delight in that little child, aren't we? This is God, folks. That's a little bit of the image of God in you. So that you can understand how God feels about you. 
If you have set Him before you and you have not put His words behind you and you keep trying, keep moving forward to Him. And you fall and you get back up and you keep going. And you fall and you get back up and you keep going. And you fall and you can't get up so you crawl. Because you want God. You just want God. This is the one whom God delivers. This is the one to whom God shows His salvation. Well, there's a whole lot more in this psalm. And so our next time together, which will be our last time together, uh, we'll look at some of the other things he says in the psalm.